Welcome to this podcast for the European Respiratory Journal. My name is James Chalmers. I'm the new deputy editor of the European Respiratory Journal, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Dr. Tony de Souza from Newcastle University in the UK and Dr. Timothy Axamit from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester in the United States to talk to us about the RESPAR trials, which are two randomized controlled trials, the largest ever conducted in bronchiectasis, which are published this month in the European Respiratory Journal. Um, so I'm going to start with the first question. Um, can you please summarize for us the, the key findings of the RESPAR trials? So I'll kick off with that, if that's okay. Um, thank you to everybody listening uh, from Newcastle. So the RESPIRE-1 trial was a trial of uh, phase three informed by results from the phase two trial. It's a large study, 416 patients, and the patients were randomized two to one active to placebo. The patients were treated over 48 weeks, either on a 14-day cycle of antibiotics with a 14-day off period, and then back on to treatment, or 28-day cycles. And I guess the key finding in this study, which excited us when, when we got the data, was there was a reduction in, in the co-primary endpoints. There was a reduction in exacerbation frequency um, in the actively treated arm on the 14-day um, cycle of 0.6 events in the year compared to those in the placebo arm of one exacerbation per year. And it also prolonged the time to first exacerbation, which in the placebo-treated group was 168 days uh, as a mean for, for time to first exacerbation, where it was 336 days or longer in the 14-day cycle. Very interestingly, the 28-day cycle did not have this positive readout. So I might pass you over to Dr. Axamit now to tell us about the RESPIRE-2 trial. And uh, in follow-up with uh, Dr. DeSoyser's uh, overview, the RESPIRE-2 trial was designed uh, identically with a two-to-one randomization, again, for the Cipro 14-day on, 14-day off, and for 28 days on, 28 days off, uh, compared to placebo. Uh, there were 176 people randomized to 14 days, 171 to uh, 28 days, and then the pooled placebo were 88 and 86, respectively, in the 14- and 28-day cycles. Uh, there are some differences that we will uh, discuss in more detail as the uh, discussion this carries on. And um, the uh, both the arms on the uh, Respire 2 program uh, did not meet uh, statistical significance, although there was a larger trend and signal in the 28-day arm, which was in uh, contrast to, as Dr. DeSoyser says, uh, with the Respire 1 program. Okay, so we, we got very excited that we had the first 48-week trial of uh, an inhaled antibiotic in bronchiectasis that showed a positive signal for exacerbations, and then failed to replicate in the second trial. So the, the obvious question is, um, with those big differences between the two studies, can you speculate on why we saw such differences between two identical trials? So uh, from a Respire 2 program, some of the uh, differences that uh, occurred uh, were twofold. Uh, one is that uh, the uh, countries that enrolled were more heavily weighted. Both were international multicenter studies, but the Respire 2 had a much larger representation across uh, Eastern Europe as well as Asia. There was not clear uh, differences between the uh, demographics 
although the number of individuals uh, demographically uh, that had a COPD and the Respire 2 program were, in fact, higher uh, from Respire 1. Uh, the entry criteria for both programs uh, required that bronchiectasis was the primary diagnosis of entry and not a primary diagnosis of COPD. Um, the other issue that uh, occurred is that there were some statistical differences between the two studies as well. Again, we'll get to that as the discussion unfolds. Okay, so we heard a few possible differences there. I wonder, Dr. DeSouza, from the Respire 1 point of view, do you have any thoughts on, on differences between the studies? I mean, it does seem that the, although the inclusion and exclusion criteria for the study were exactly the same, there does seem to be, I guess, heterogeneity within bronchiectasis, even allowing for those entry criteria, and that's mapped out between the two studies with differences in ages and difference in ages uh, in, in rates of, of comorbid COPD. I guess the other thing is just looking at the international catchment and that slight variation, there was probably heterogeneity in the background treatment um, and certainly um, I'm pretty sure how we record exacerbations varies from not only uh, country to country but within sites. So I think that's one of the challenges is these, these studies, how we quite group them together or, or cannot group them together is, is perhaps some of the, the, the current ways we approach trials can factor in that variation across multiple sites and across multiple healthcare systems. I might expand on that heterogeneity and to a large extent the the importance of a priori definitions. And as we start to ponder uh, what the lessons learned of from both Respire 1 and Respire 2, I would share with you also in Respire 2 that the overall event rate, the number of exacerbations, was in fact lower than anticipated. Uh, the overall event rate for the whole cohort was at the level of 06 per year, essentially, and the enrollment criteria uh, getting into the study were that these were frequent exacerbators defined by a historical number of exacerbations of two or more in the past year with a pre-specified pathogen present. Uh, the point, uh, to a large extent, and what we need to be mindful as we move forward is that we did not have a standardized and validated definition of exacerbation going into the study and the drop in the event rate uh, to less than 1 and 0 0.6 overall is far lower than what uh, had been anticipated and as a consequence uh, probably contributed substantially to the uh, uh, lack of reaching statistical Endpoint. So uh, we need to be mindful as investigators and certainly clinicians of how we a priori define exacerbations, not only for enrollment into a study, but then uh, as a study unfolds and uh, as uh, additional analyses, uh, including sensitivity analysis for the definitions comes out, I think we'll learn some additional important uh, lessons there. I think um, I'm imagining lots of people listening to this who use inhaled antibiotics will be looking at these two trials as by far the largest studies to inform us on the efficacy of inhaled antibiotics. And I think they'll be wondering what does this trial tell us about which patients will benefit from inhaled antibiotics? So uh, under what circumstances or what do you think we've learned from these trials that can help the clinicians listening to decide which patients are likely to benefit? 
from my standpoint in the Respire 2 program, I would again share that the trend analysis and the signal were positive for Cipro DPI uh, in both treatment arms. And although they didn't, uh, we didn't meet statistical endpoints, the signal, much like Respire 1, was concordantly all in the same direction. And in fact, uh, I think one of the lessons and, and the takeaway messages for clinicians is that uh, inhaled antibiotics, as most of us understand, are not for all patients with bronchiectasis, but for a select cohort. And I believe, uh, based on the data presented, that there are clinically meaningful uh, improvements in uh, patient uh, outcomes not only with event rates, with time to first exacerbation, frequency of exacerbation, but also trend analysis with quality of life issues that were done and then subgroup analysis, not done for secondary endpoints given the hierarchical nature of the statistical uh, endpoint. Uh, and, and, and the point here is that if we use the inhaled antibiotics in the uh, proper uh, populations, uh, in this case, frequent exacerbators with a clear definition, already uh, having uh, baseline and uh, chest physiotherapy and other uh, aspects, uh, this is the group that will likely most uh, benefit based on this data. If I I can add another point, I guess one of the things that we've learned, and this has been seen in the COPD trials, is that the pre-entry exacerbation frequency falls in in both COPD trials and now in bronchiectasis trials even in the placebo arm so I think what this this tells us is is that we we need some better tools to work out which patients are going to continue to exacerbate and respire uh, one the the placebo arm uh, exacerbated at, at one event per year as it were so it's quite a big difference between that and respire too so so i think just trying to understand a little bit more why those patients behave differently is going to be really important so clinically i think i guess we're seeing that the, the trend analyses the sensitivity analysis said there was no particular subgroup that did better or worse with these just the event rates were much slower than predicted so we need to find a way clinically of enriching these both for our clinical practice and trials for the, the patients are, are going to stay much much more towards that event rate of two so that we can show the differences i think the other important thing is that in terms of biomarkers we don't really have a robust biomarker yet that says this person's most likely to exacerbate in fact possibly one of the best will be their past history so we, we really need to work out where the threshold for that uh, exacerbation rate is going to be such that perhaps three is a better number and therefore patients are more likely to have three exacerbations and, and for us be able to show in the clinical trial setting that there's a, a kind of consistent benefit. But the other point is uh, we we want to touch on this further, but there has been a, some skewing towards trials of inhalational antibiotics in bronchiectasis towards those with pseudomonas. And that's completely understandable because they often have the greatest health care impact in terms of requiring intravenous antibiotics in hospital care. But what we saw in both studies, those who had non-pseudomonas exacerbations uh, as a cause for entry into the trial also exacerbated. So there's definitely an unmet treatment need in, in those patients without pseudomonas. That's that's very interesting because, as you say, there is a concentration of, of treatment with current inhaled antibiotics in the pseudomonas population. So it sounds as if we've learned a lot of both clinical lessons and also lessons for the design of future trials um, from these two studies. 
what I've heard from both of you is that uh, we need better ways to enrich patients with the frequency of exacerbations and maybe using a higher cutoff for future trials may help to achieve that and also better ways of detecting exacerbations in future trials. Are there any other major met messages or design features you think that you would recommend to anyone designing a future inhaled antibiotic study? I might uh, uh, propose and uh, encourage investigators or those uh, thinking about uh, future clinical trials to refer to a uh, ERJ uh, statement on definition of exacerbations to uh, better inform uh, the clinical uh, uh, investigators uh, to who should enroll as well as then how to best uh, account for this uh, exacerbation event rate uh, in, in a clinical study. We should uh, look at quality of life measures as well. Unfortunately, the current tools, including the QOLB, may not be exactly what we need uh, for uh, exacerbation uh, monitoring, and that sh is another topic that warrants additional investigation uh, on whether or not we have the best tools. Uh, we think that the St. George uh, uh, respiratory quotient is longstanding. We're all familiar with it, but it's not been validated, and it's clearly not the best tool, much like the QOLB for exacerbation uh, rates. The other uh, plug uh, I would uh, encourage investigators, uh, there hopefully will be a statement coming up uh, addressing this issue that Dr. DeSouza brings up and that I think most of us are uh, mindful of is the heterogeneity and specifically is how do we define bronchiectasis? And uh, we understand that given this heterogeneity and potential overlap uh, with primary bronchiectasis versus those that have obstructive disease versus both obstructive disease and bronchiectasis, whether they, in their natural course of the disease process, have a uh, similar uh, outcome is yet to be determined. So we need to a priori define this, and the ERJ uh, journal is uh, going to be a very uh, important instrument to help inform uh, the bronchiectasis community internationally. Yeah, a couple of other points to add on to those excellent ones there from Dr. Axamit. I guess the the key thing that I think many people hold very true is not translating a cystic fibrosis-related antibiotic therapy directly over into bronchiectasis. I think dose finding would be very useful. And the optimal dosing regimen, as you saw, this positive signal for the 14-day uh, cycle in uh, in Respire 1 that didn't show through in the 28-day, means that we, we don't know how uh, how frequently to try and suppress the bacteria and of course, one of the questions is, is that is often asked in these was, do you not think you would have got an even better result if you'd done continuous antibiotics? And that's something that we as a community need to address because, um, of course, the longer you give an antibiotic, the more likely it is to be resistance. And, and so we perhaps need to decide as a group, would we be accepting of resistance if we reduced exacerbations? One could argue that detecting resistance in these sort of studies is actually a biomarker of compliance. And I think that's another challenge we need to start working with our patients and saying we may have this fantastic treatment, but it could be quite intensive in terms of, say, a complex nebulized regimen. Um, so, so we need to start doing that, that, that work with the, the key stakeholders, the patients, and what they're also comfortable to take. Um, the, the other aspects I think that are important for us to understand is potentially thinking about how new treatments might fit in, particularly if they're um, new licensed medications that are on patent, 
whether there should be an expectation of some minimal baseline treatments such that um, developing healthcare economies have said, well, we've already started the patients on these sort of treatments and only at this point would we would be willing to pay for, for a new expensive therapy potentially. So I think those are also things for people to say, I think a minimal set is the patient has well-characterized bronchiectasis. They've already been taught to do physiotherapy. After that, they're still exacerbating. We probably want to measure the sputum, um, at least in phase two, and we want better quality of life markers as well. The last point I'd like to make is, is in, in the COPD world is that increasingly the, the, the feeling of unreported exacerbations as being important drivers of major exacerbations. To date, none of the studies have used any of the symptom diaries, for example, on a large scale, certainly, and none of them used electronic data capture. So our concern is, although our event rate dropped in these studies compared to entry criteria, perhaps it didn't. In fact, the patients just knew they were at the end of a phone line to go and see the trial centre and, and self-managed um, or, or just worked through more minor exacerbations where they might have taken antibiotics. So I think having those and understanding the impact of them would be really important in the future too. That's really, really helpful. I want to thank you both for providing us with so much uh, interesting information and insights into the Respira 1 and Respira trials um, on today's podcast. Uh, these two landmark trials in bronchiectasis are now available to read on the European Respiratory Journal website. Um, we're delighted that you two as the authors chose to publish these trials in the European Respiratory Journal and we're very grateful for you uh, joining us for this podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Could I, could, could I just round up by thanking all the sites and the participants who agreed to, to enter this study? I think it has helped us um, understand the complexities in it and, and without all those people involved we wouldn't be here today so thanks to all who helped. Yeah. And I would also thank uh, the ERJ for their support uh, to uh, uh, proceed with the publications um, and the uh, partnership uh, with uh, industry uh, that uh, I think is a model that uh, can be carried forward for other uh, products as they get developed and come to market. Uh, this is, these uh, trials are large, expensive and uh, take a, a fair amount of time and without uh, working together as partners uh, between investigators uh, and industry along with our patients, um, these types of imp uh, improvements and uh, data won't be available. So I, I wish to also express my appreciation to those involved.